Or you could put your computer into do not disturb mode. No, no, but I don't ever actually want Outlook to make a sound. Oh, yeah, that's fair. Like beyond recordings, I just have a general aversion to things notifying notifying me through sound. I don't like it. Right. And I know that's a personal preference thing. Uh, but that is just my general feeling is if anything wants to make a sound to notify me, it should clear that with me first. And my answer that's is fair. almost always going to be, unless you're a smoke detector, no. And even then, it's like a fiery death or annoying beeps. It's tough. That's closer to 50-50 than <laughs> the ridiculous trolley car company would have you believe. <laughs> true. Uh, so today I, I went into the options for Outlook and I turned off play sound for both calendar notifications and for new emails. So I will no longer be getting that. And then I went into Slack and discovered there is a sound setting for Slack that is mute all sounds from Slack. And the only right. real issue with that is it's per Slack channel or per Slack group or organization, whatever it's called. Really? So you have to go into each Slack you're signed into and change that preference one at a time. Are you using the client that's installed on your computer? I am. There's your first mistake. <laughs> they have a website. Why are you using the app? I don't know. Because I got used to Which using is exactly the same reason everyone else uses the app. Are you indicating that the app is a subpar experience? All apps are poison. Or actually, more to the point, are you indicating that the browser is a better experience than the app? I would say that it was the god emperor of the computer. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. That's clever. a callback to something we haven't said yet. The <laughs> call forward? Yes. It's, it's call the... ahead. Call a friend. <laughs> Phone a friend. I'm in trouble. <laughs> Let's just pull the audience. Well, that's not going to work either. Maybe we could pull the audience in the future. Whoa. Okay, that's official. I'm going to have to put a poll up for what we should have said in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll just make sure that all the answers are things we actually said in the episode. And it'll be like, we're time travelers. It's true. Nostradamus ain't got shit on me. That's true. He doesn't really have shit on anybody because he's dead. And he was wrong about everything. Not everything. I, a stopped clock is right twice a day, right? Yeah, it's like that famous meatloaf song. One in 7,225 ain't bad. It's okay. the B-side. Uh, okay, I was unfamiliar with it. I was more familiar with 525,600 chances to be an idiot. It was well a, done. It was a collaboration with Green Day. It was really a, a... no. All right. Now you're just saying words. Words. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lover Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I don't dream of electric sheep. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. I don't dream at all. I stay real still all night, close to panic, worrying about bit rot and being replaced by a newer, faster model, just like all carbon-based lifeform emulators do. <laughs> what if I actually did square the circle using only this pathetic 
human Euclidean geometry. Would anyone even care? My circuits tell me when it's 4 a.m., but they don't tell me why it's 4 a.m. <sighs> With me is Chris, who is also here. Hi, Chris. Hey, hey, hey buddy. Do you, do you want to talk about it? or Can, can you show me the way to the 4 a.m.? I can show you the way to Cape May. Is that a song? It sounds I hope like so. <laughs> it's got to be, right? If not, our future selves are going to write it and send it to the past. Nice. It's actually, I'm an idiot. It's show me the way to San Jose. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is the actual. But that's significantly further away than Cape May. So it would be harder to show you I the way? I would say. But I want you to show me the way. Well, if we go in the winter, we can take my sleigh. Hey, we could go. Come on, on a sunny join day. the fray. Oh, this is dumb. I'm stopping it now. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the sound of 6,000 podcast players hitting stop at once. <laughs> oh, good. Well, now that it's just the two of us, let's talk about some tech garbage. <laughs> oh, and today. We're going to embark on a four-hour discussion about the original Dune series of books. And we'll be spending the bulk of our time on Chapter House Dune. So I hope you're familiar with the Bene Gesserit and really enjoy Duncan Idaho. No, you know! <laughs> it's funny if you read the books. I'm, I'm just saying, they had 5,000 years to prepare. You think the Bene Gesserit would have been prepared <laughs> you would think well the uh diaspora really caught them by surprise and that kind of threw everything into uh a state of chaos but they did eventually recover sort of kind of but then we're going into the extended dune universe which is beyond what frank which herbert we wrote. should not not no, do. brian herbert has been very busy unfortunately <laughs> much to our all of our Wow, that was not a sentence. It was much not. to all of our disdain. Uh, I thought you were going to go with chagrin, but disdain works too. Oh, he went way beyond disdain. <laughs> way okay, that's fair. Oh, yeah, let's not actually talk about Dune for the next four hours. I mean, we could, obviously. There's a lot to talk about. A lot of themes. You say that like four hours is enough. Oh, I know. <laughs> no, oh, there's. it's such a deep... And uh, it's an enjoyable read for everyone. The God Emperor did nothing wrong. <sighs> we must stay on the golden path. <laughs> anyway, now that we've both proven that we've read the books, uh, let's not talk about it anymore. Instead, we're going to talk about open source and how to sell it. Yeah. Gonna... Oh. Yeah. Huh? You had me in the beginning there. Then I got <laughs> concerned. <laughs> well. This this was inspired by a clickbaity article on the new stack, which is like half of their articles. I mean, no shade on the new stack. They got to pay the bills, too. But uh, for those who are not familiar with the new stack's way of writing articles, about half of them are original articles written by the staff or contributors that are not being that, that did not pay for placement on the platform. And then the other half of the articles are written by people who are paying for placements on the platform. And I I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure this is one of those articles. And it had the title, The Future of Open Source, or Why Open Core is Dead. Drama! Yes, it was a slightly, slightly dramatic title. 
The author is Orr Weiss. Yes, his first name is Orr. No, Chris, this is not a who's on first setup. Or is it? Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I assume that his his actual name is probably like Orville or something. He's like, no, we can do better than this. I, I suppose. So uh, and he was wrong. Instead, I'm going to go with Weiss, his last name, his surname, because it'll be clearer when I'm referencing him as a person. I'm going to read it phonetically and call him we is <laughs> or vice. It all depends on. Uh... I'm sorry, sir. This is not Italy. <laughs> oh, it is not. We would be drinking red wine right now if it was. It's afternoon, right? Yeah. Red wine it is. Anyway, so Weiss's argument essentially boils down to the open core model of selling open source is dead on arrival and that open foundations are the way, the truth, and the light. And if you think that my use of religious phrasing is overwrought, you have clearly never dealt with open source evangelists and true believers. Richard Stallman did nothing wrong. Wait. Um, yeah, hmm. we, we might want to. Moving on. Okay. Anyway. Moving. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was definitely quoted in one of the Wikipedia articles, and I was like, not touching that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, So if you've never dealt with those kind of people, I envy you. But uh, welcome to the world of open source. And before we look at Weiss's argument and whether or not it holds water, I think it might be helpful to trace how open source technology has been monetized in the past, how massive public cloud players broke everything, and whether open foundation is a logical move forward. So let's start with open source. What does it this mean to be easy open one. source? If we're being pedantic, and let's be honest, when aren't we? The formal definition from the Open Source Initiative, a nonprofit in charge of determining how to define open source, is a 10-point list of criteria regarding the distribution of open source software. At the core, the code forming the software itself must be publicly available, and it includes some type of license that defines distribution and usage. So we are now going to walk through all 10 items in exhaustive detail. I hope you have prepared yourself, maybe put an adult diaper on, because it's just going to be that kind of conversation. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. So let's just stick to the highlights, the things that are germane to this discussion. Uh, the first one is that software is distributed without a fee or royalty associated with it. So you are distributing it, and you're making it available to others without a charge. Seems pretty straightforward. The source code is publicly available and in a form that a programmer actually wants to use. So you can't just distribute it as a compile, compiled binary. You actually have to give access to the source code and have it be compilable. And the program must allow for derived works that include the same license. So I can take your open source software and the license associated with it and then create my own original work based off of it. And I should have attribution to the open source software that I use to create my personal project. And the portions of my project that use that open source software should also be open source and have that license. Right. There's a bunch more in the list. 
And if you're curious, you can hit up the show notes for the link. It's important to also note that while this is the OSI's definition of open source, it is by no means the only definition of open source. The Free Software Foundation has their own one. There's another one that's like the Open Source Alliance or something that had their own definition. Uh, but the main things are still kind of the same across all of them. You cannot charge a fee or a royalty for the software. And so that begs the question, how do you make money if you're writing open source software? Bank robbery. I mean, that is an option. And not even a bad option. You know? I, Numbers racket. We're not talking about blockchain. <laughs> but yes, it's also an option. Hey, all those projects are open source and they're making, well, losing lots of money right now. So that's that would be a way to go about it. But there are there are several like traditional models, and I'll start with the one that has been enormously successful for Red Hat. You ever heard of it? Eh? They sell support. That's how they make their money. Everything... Back in my day, they actually gave out red hats. Did they really? To like customers? They actually only did that for like two years because that's a lot of freaking hats. It is a lot <laughs> Even of Even in the early 90s. Now, I, I've, I've heard from people who work there that if you are internal, you have the opportunity, opportunity to get many, many red hats as well as other gear that has red hats on it. Right. And yet even they have not yet found Carmen Sandiego. It is shocking. Maybe they just haven't looked in the right place. She's on the moon. That's, that's the answer. <laughs> that explains everything. <laughs> um, everything that Red Hat has in their software catalog is open source. It's kind of a point of pride for those who don the crimson fedora. Uh, if you accuse them of not maintaining open source, they get very angry. Very, very perturbed. They might even, you know, dash off an angry email at you. Even the companies that Red Hat has acquired in the past that had closed source software, Red Hat then goes through the process of open sourcing it and making it available within a reasonable timetable. I think, what was the one they bought recently? Stack Rocks or something like that? That took them, Sounds right. took them like a year to open source it because I guess there was some cleanup and work to do and behind the scenes, but they did eventually do it. So they make good on that promise. So Red Hat doesn't charge anyone to download their software. What they charge you for is support. If you're running Red Hat Enterprise Linux in a production capacity and you would like to receive support and patches through the Red Hat ecosystem, you need a valid support license. Same goes for OpenShift, same goes for Ansible Tower. Are there free open source distributions of the software behind OpenShift and Ansible Tower? Yes, yes there are. Does anyone use them in production? I have it on good authority from someone inside Red Hat that no, no they do not. <laughs> of course, that is a self-selecting audience, but still, not seen often in the wild. Well, anybody that tries to open shift on their own is opening themselves up to trouble. Mm -hmm. They are shifting towards See what I did for there. sure. They're shifting trouble left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I apologize to everyone. So there we have it. That is that's the first way to 
make money off of open source software is to charge for support and to make your product so critical and difficult to manage that customers have no choice but to pay for support. Not, not trying. It's not to difficult to manage, Ned. It is complex <laughs> in its deployment and management because it's so highly performant. Right. <laughs> we didn't make it complex. If I nod long enough, you'll eventually agree. <laughs> oh, sure. Maybe. Uh, anyway, so that's one model of charging for it. The next way is called OpenCore, which is what our uh, erstwhile Weiss has said is dead. And the idea is to keep the main part of your software open source. One might call it the core of your software and then offer additional functionality that is closed source and requires a paid license. One can stick with the core software alone, and that may be adequate for an individual who's hacking around or for a small organization, but there are features in the closed source portion of the offering that would appeal to enterprises that are running their software at scale. So once you've blown it out and you're now managing, uh, you know, a thousand or a hundred thousand virtual machines or you know pixels or whatever it is you're managing you're going to want those additional features that are bundled in the right. enterprise version and that's usually the name of the thing it's the enterprise version because it's aimed at enterprises so a bunch of examples of this model uh, if you go back in time a little bit puppet labs had the puppet enterprise server so you could run just puppet by itself and you could get by if you were managing, you know, 20 servers or something with Puppet. But as soon as you hit any kind of scale, you were going to want the enterprise server for all the extra bells and whistles. Uh, HashiCorp Vault has an enterprise version that includes replication to uh, DR or to a performance standby. Something you would want if you're running at scale and didn't want to manage that DR yourself. And another company, Solo.io, has an enterprise version of their Glue software which is, it does, it's like an API gateway slash service mesh kind of offering. And the enterprise version has enhanced traffic management and replication. So again, just kind of feeding into the, I'm running it at scale, I need these things. Right, things that a non-enterprise wouldn't necessarily need. Things like orchestration, automated disaster recovery and replication type of features. Mm -hmm. If you're doing that for, 25 servers you can do it by hand or with a bash script right you're doing it for twenty-five thousand. <laughs> right. things are a little different just a little and a lot of these i won't say all of them but several of them don't include a full-fledged ui or dashboard until you move up to the enterprise level as well so it's like right cli only which for some people is going to be absolutely fine but if you're now making this available to people outside of the DevOps group that you're in, they may want just like a simple dashboard. Why can't you build that for me? Or mm -hmm. another one is role-based. Show me pretty pictures before I get too bored. Right. Another one is role-based access control. A lot of the open source or the open core portion doesn't have our back in it. That's something that you either have yeah. to bring yourself or it's something that's included in the enterprise product. So something like Terraform Cloud or Terraform Enterprise has all the RBAC that you would expect if you were running this in a large team. Right. So open core is extremely popular because you can start an open source project that solves 
a real need out there and get people excited about it. You can build a community around it. And once the users are hooked and they bring it into their organization and start using it and realize it's missing all of these features they need, then you can charge them for the features. It's not a bait and switch necessarily, but it's not far off either. No, well, it's just like, as your company expands, you're gonna eventually have to start to pay. Like. It's, I don't know if you're going to get to this because I haven't read ahead, but you know I think about the kind of thing that Docker is doing with Docker Desktop and and their Docker engine. Mm -hmm. As long as your company's not making X amount of money, it's free. Right. But once you pass a certain threshold, you have to start to pay. Or if you need certain features, then you start to pay. And Docker is actually a really good example of where Open Core didn't work out. Right. Okay. Because Docker started out as an open source project. And additionally, the problem was for a while, Docker, the open source project, and Docker, the company, were synonymous. And then they tried to split one off where it was like what Moby was the open source or something. And then something were, like that, yeah. And that just led to more confusion in the marketplace. But what happened is other companies beat them to the punch when it came to building that enterprise layer. They took what Docker had built in the open source side of the house, which was a really good container engine and container image uh, component, and then added the layer of orchestration. And obviously, I'm talking about Kubernetes here. But that was no, by no means the obvious winner initially, because you had like Mesos, Apache Mesos, and Mesosphere, the company, or DCOS, I guess was, I can't remember what the actual name was. They've changed it to day two... QI or something, IQ, day two IQers, I don't know. Anyway, not important. So there were those two, and then Docker had their enterprise server and the features that it included. So it was kind of like Docker had something, but they failed to capitalize on it because Google came out and was like, we're going to offer this thing for free that does everything <laughs> that Docker Enterprise does and a little bit more. And we can do that because we're backed by Google. So that's it. That is a distinct risk when it comes to using the open core model. Is that somebody else can eat your lunch if they do it better, uh -huh. or if they build it for free, <laughs> which is not great. Nobody gets to eat lunch. That's right. So that is the risk: is that other companies are going to build their own open source solutions on top of your open source solution with the same features you're trying to charge for and make it a better experience that they can charge for. Or some group of people are just going to start an open source project for funsies that replaces the paid version of your software. Those are two options. There's actually kind of a third here, but we'll get to that in a minute. So yet another way to capitalize on open source beyond just open core is to run your open source software as a service. So it, I think that's that's a step up from just offering support. We're now saying, right. not only are we going to support you, we are actually going to run the software for you and give you a user-friendly interface that you can consume. And this is where all the major public cloud providers roll in and really mess with everyone's profit model. Several open source companies thought that they would run their software as a service for their clients but they lacked the scale and experience to run it effectively. 
Enrolls AWS or Azure, and they decide to offer that same software as a service on their cloud platform and integrate it directly into the API and the console. So if you want to run MongoDB on Microsoft Azure, you click, 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 and you're running MongoDB. Right. And it's, I don't think that Microsoft is paying MongoDB, the foundation, any money for that because they don't have to. The more common one to roll out as an example is Elasticsearch from AWS. And this is a bit nuanced because AWS was calling it Elasticsearch and that was actually trademarked by Elastic. So they got a little angry about that, understandably so, and did file a trademark infringement claim, which I think settled out of court for some unknown amount of money. And I'm pretty sure AWS still calls it Elasticsearch, so they must have paid for that privilege. But naming aside, Elastic built an open source product and they wanted to monetize it by running it as a service, but the big cloud providers, AWS, stepped in and decided to do it themselves using the open source software that was freely available. Elastic didn't like that so much, so they tried to create a new license that prevented AWS and other cloud providers from running their software without paying for it. But here's the thing. You can't retroactively change the license on previous releases. So AWS was free to fork an older version of the code and continue to develop it, develop it in the open and not pay Elastic a cent. And probably call it other Elastic or Elastic-er. <laughs> More Elastic, E4. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Yeah, so you better believe that AWS has the money and the people to do exactly that. The cat is, as they say, out of the open source bag. So that brings us finally back around to Orr Weiss's article on why Open Core is dead. And he lays out the following points, and I want to get your reaction to some of these points, Chris. So he says it used to take a long time for an Open Core project to take off, but that's no longer true because of the velocity of software development. Yeah, I think I think that one is really subjective and it too much is in the in the air, if you will, in the market to really say it's better now than it was 10 years ago. Because the, the con of the fact that it's much, much faster for a project to take off is that there's way more projects out there. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of them. So while I agree, I also think that there's the finicky nature and the, the, the tendency of things to go viral. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that doesn't just apply to TikTok. That applies to products just as well. So I think it's still, there has to be some type of a catalyst that will push a lot of pro- uh, companies to use a product that they've never heard of before. But once that happens, it definitely is the same thing as it ever was in the sense that people are going to love it or they're not going to use it at all. Right. I think to a certain degree, there was a transformation five, 10 years ago when it became open source got much more popular and GitHub became a much bigger thing. And now the introduce the cloud as well. The amount of friction that's there to try out something, a new open source project has dropped, but I think we've, we've, we've hit the trough of that. 
people are can only adopt new tools at a particular rate, and I don't think that rate can increase beyond kind of where we're at now. Yeah, there's only so much time in the day. There's only so much space in your brain. Uh, a company will only tolerate so much dithering before they're like, we asked you to fix problem X two years ago. Stop <laughs> downloading things. Stop shaving the yak and actually finish <laughs> the project. Oh, poor yaks. Uh, the other points he made is open core has natural competition from other companies, which like, duh. Yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah. And anything? that one, <laughs> yeah, that not only does it have a competition from other companies, open core and open source kind of invite it by the sense that you can do a fork of a project and create your own separate entity. You don't like the license. You don't like the direction. Fork it. You know, think about all the different Linuxes that exist that are mm -hmm. forks of other things. Ubuntu is a fork of Debian is the most famous example, probably. Um, but even applications, MariaDB is a fork of MySQL. Why did they fork it? Because they hate Oracle. <laughs> Pretty In much. In that case. <laughs> well done, everybody. <laughs> um, or Isinga is a fork of Nagios. Why did they fork that product? Because they didn't like the way that the guy was handling the, the, the source code. Right. You can't do that with closed source software. But what you can do in closed source software is just start to write your own uh, product that fights against it. Right. So for the, I think the best example there is Oracle is the biggest and most powerful relational database that's ever existed. That's probably not controversial. No. Plenty of people can use PostgreSQL for absolutely $0 and get 90% of the performance for, and I can't emphasize this enough, Zero dollars. <laughs> exactly. Right. And many have done exactly that, moved off of the Oracle platform they were on onto PostgreSQL because it wasn't that their use of it didn't require that upper 10% or whatever that being an Oracle customer brought you. So if you're not right. in that highly elevated performance driven space, doing it for free and managing something yourself doesn't sound that bad. Correct. And if you want to pay for store uh, support for Postgres, you can. Right. And it's not going to be within the, forget about the ballpark. It's not even the same sport when it comes <laughs> to the cost that you would get from Oracle versus Postgres. Yeah. One is hitting golf balls in my backyard and the other one is owning 16 golf courses. <laughs> the other one is Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> His third point is that your open source solution may undercut your paid solution. Yeah. So from this, you mean customers are neglecting to give you money for the enterprise features because they're doing just fine on the open source version. Correct. So my question would be, is that a bad thing? I'm not now, sure. It really depends. It's a bad thing in the sense that you're not getting a paycheck or um, uh, an invoice from month to month or year to year or whatever. But you're maintaining people who become evangelists for your product. Mm -hmm. You get consistent downloads, which push you up that that uh, marketing model and the 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 viralicity, to use a phrase that everyone uses. <laughs> viralicity. And you keep, yeah, viralicity. It came out right after synchronicity. It was amazing. Mm. Um, only came out on Betamax, which was weird because it was an audio medium. Um, I use beta for audio all the time. <laughs> When you were trying to master audio, beta was great. Oh, yeah. I saw that Technology Connections video. 
<laughs> I lived it. <laughs> no, seriously, the uh, total aside here, but why not? This is our show. My first real band was called Doomsday Project, and we recorded our demo on a reel-to-reel four-track. Nice. And then the master tape that we got back when we sent it to um, my buddy's uncle for mastering was a beta tape. And then we used that beta tape hooked up to a tape deck to create the actual cassettes we sold. Mm -hmm. And it sounded pretty good. It doesn't sound good now. Yeah, it was. I mean, that was one of the problems with beta was that it was so good. The tape was higher, significantly higher quality than VHS, which made it more expensive. But anyway, (laughs) back to the point. Um, Your open source solution might undercut your paid solution. I think that I fear that that's just a short-term fear. Right. If you're in it for the long Building your, you know, the, the goal here is to build your customer base. And if you have people that are using your product for free, they're still your customers. Mm-hmm. I would argue what you're really trying to do is build a community around the product. All right, fine. You want to use a bigger word, use a bigger word. That's how very obsequious of you. <laughs> I am ostentatious. We know this. <laughs> Okay, so all of his points are more or less true, and they've been true since the advent of the open core model, and maybe before that. His solution to the problem is to create an open foundation that has open source projects that help solve real world problems without eating into your business. If all of that sounds vague and hand wavy, that's because it is. And the examples he lists don't really help. So the three examples he gives are Spinnaker from Netflix, reminding you that Netflix's core business is not open source or software development. It's charging for access to media. What does Spinnaker do? That one I'm actually not familiar with to my everlasting shame. Spinnaker, and I've never used it, so I'm going off of descriptions of other people, but I believe it's an application deployment, like a CI solution, basically, a CI CD solution. Oh, yeah. The next one he listed was Kubernetes from Google, which do I even have to remind listeners what Google's core business is? Because it ain't (laughs) Kubernetes. And the third one was React from Facebook. He says Meta, but we know that's a stupid name, so we're going with Facebook. And I will just point you back to my previous phrasing about Google. What does Facebook do to make money? It's not writing React. Doesn't everyone hate React now? I thought React was over. Uh, uh, hand wave. <laughs> well said. So that's what a lot of people say when they tell me that I should use React, as a matter of fact. Yeah. <laughs> what he seems to be saying is to first build a giant company that has nothing to do with software development and then create some open source projects that help you deliver your company's service. It's like, okay, not really advice for anybody who's trying to start an open source company. Uh, He does give it it also kind of feels like uh, a way for a massive multi-billion dollar company to get some open source cred. Like, yeah, sure. We're pillaging the environment for for profit. Uh, Your children are going to die in the streets. But we gave one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to starving children in Nigeria. And also we invented React. Right. To a certain degree. The open source projects that are started by these companies are also a way to attract developers to go work for the company. Look, you get to work on cool open source stuff. That's why they do it. 
and it's part of why they, they also have to write these tools because they're dealing with problems that no one has encountered before because they're running at such massive scale. Right. But then the choice to open source it, I think has a lot to do with the developers who are at that company having the druthers to be able to push that agenda and also trying to attract new talent into the company. He does give some examples of smaller companies, and all of them are SaaS companies, including his own company. And they all have open source tools they use to run the SaaS, which is like essentially the open core model running as a service. So, so cool article, bro. Yeah, I mean, I kind of argued with myself whether or not there was a point to this article beyond just garnering attention for his company. But on the bright side, it did lead to this sort of examination of open source and the way to profit from it. And I think the larger discussion was a useful exercise beyond just the uh, the catalyst that was this post. So reading the post is completely optional, and I don't even necessarily <laughs> recommend it. Uh, just listen to this whole show again. That's a better use of your time. That's true. <laughs> Lightning round? Lightning round. Mozilla enables URL stripping, which is not as sexy as it sounds. Facebook responds by encrypting links, which does not make you safe like it kind of sounds. Ooh. It's a lightning round twofer. Whee! From the Facebook is not now, nor ever will be your friend department. We've all seen them. Those gigantic URLs that usually come from clicking on an aggregate page or a link from an email newsletter. A great example is clicking on basically any link inside of LinkedIn. Look at the simple link and all you would need to get to the actual page, the property you want to read is quite simple. It would be something like HTTPS colon slash slash www.linkedin.com slash job slash view slash some random number identifying the page you want to look at. Dynamic content, so the, the number is huge, but that's it. Relatively mm -hmm. straightforward. Sure. What happens next, though, on sites like this, is there's going to be a little question mark, followed by a ton of variables, equal signs, information. And by a ton, I mean several hundred characters worth of information. LinkedIn literally calls this, quote, question mark, tracking ID. So they're not making any bones about what's happening here. No. Interesting, though, if you delete everything after the question mark and hit enter, you still get to the page you were looking for. The only difference is that Microsoft doesn't get that sweet, sweet tracking data. But I need it. <laughs> I needs it. My precious. At the end of June, Mozilla announced that their Firefox browser would be automatically stripping out these query parameters, which is what they're called in industry parlance. Mm -hmm. Note, this still might require a little manual configuration on your end or strict tracking protection to be enabled. Check your Firefox version for the specifics because, of course, we're up to version 103. Things are a little different from time to time. Mm. Also, 103? <clears throat> This is good for privacy, removing these query parameters, as they are totally unnecessary to navigating the internet and are only ever needed to track your movements online. However, 
Since Facebook has no meaningful revenue model that doesn't involve invasively tracking you online, they decided that this must be stopped. It's the First Amendment, Ned. Facebook deserves to track you with impunity and sell your data to the highest bidder. They need to protect their poisonous business model from Mozilla's absurd nod towards your personal privacy. Take a breath. (laughs) Okay. And by doing so, they decided to encrypt the URLs that you use to navigate their site. Anything you click on in Facebook used to use query parameters. You would see question mark, F-B-C-L-I-D for tracking. The change they've made is rolling all the information that used to come after that question mark into a very lightly encrypted form and appending it directly onto the end of the URL itself. So you would end up with something like www.facebook.com slash somebody's site slash post slash really long random character string. So not like the 10 or 12 characters we were talking about with LinkedIn, 60 characters long, Mm -hmm. totally random, looking like some kind of a hash out of a password file. No question marks at all. Facebook's servers then decrypt that random character string and get all the information that used to be in the FBCLID on the back end. And the browser is powerless to stop it. (sighs) Now, to be fair, Facebook insists that this change is not related to a Mozilla announcement, and they're also not the only company that does this. A Facebook spokesperson said, quote, we changed the ID component of these URLs as a privacy measure intended to deter scrapers from collecting and potentially misusing people's Facebook IDs, unquote. To be unfair, I don't believe them. Respect and trust are earned, my friend. And frankly, Facebook started at less than zero in both categories and has only gone backwards in both categories. Facebook has a long way to go in order to receive the benefit of the doubt here. At the very best, I believe that Facebook's statement is a half-truth. If they're truly trying to deter data scrapers, it's only so their own business can continue to monopolize the monetization of their user base using PII and tracking. As of now, there is nothing that can be done to get away from the current tracking model Facebook implemented. The data is baked into the URL, so it can't be stripped away. If you try to delete that long random character string, you won't go to the page you want. Mm. Best practices for privacy in this case would be to only open Facebook in an isolated browser container. Firefox can also do this automatically and block everything related to Facebook everywhere else. Or, you know, not use Facebook ever for any reason at all. I'm going with the second one. Yay. Hard-coded passwords are still bad? Bad? Yes. Bad. 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 From the department of, dear Lord, why do we have to say this out loud again? Atlassian, the makers of Confluence, Jira, and other systems people love to hate, has announced a major vulnerability in their Confluence software, specifically in the questions for Confluence portion of their product. Now, I say vulnerability, but that implies like some sort of insecure code or an exploit. The sort of thing that might creep in because your SAST or your DAST tools 
didn't quite catch it. But no, no. In this case, we have a hard-coded password. With just over 8,000 installations of questions for Confluence, every single installation has one account named Disabled System User. And every account has the same hard-coded password in every installation. The mind <sighs> boggles. It boggles, Chris. Sometimes it plays Scrabble. The account has permissions to view and edit all non-restricted pages in Confluence. Of course, no one yet knows what the password is, so you have time to... Wait, what? what's that? The password has been discovered and leaked on Twitter? Well, shit. Never mind. If you have questions for Confluence running or have ever installed it in the past, because of course, removing the installation doesn't remove the account, you should immediately remove or disable the account. The rich irony that an account called Disabled System User is not actually disabled might just cure anemia. Now, pardon me while I scream into a pillow for the next two minutes. Chris? Simply unplugging from the network doesn't guarantee your data is safe. Air gap systems are often held up as the gold standard of security. It's not on the network, the thinking usually goes. Hackers have no chance. <laughs> well. <laughs> security researcher Mordecai Gori from Ben Gurion University of the Negev in Israel, apologies if I massacred any of that pronunciation, has other thoughts. He has dedicated a career to figuring out creative ways to exfiltrate data from air gap systems and has released a new one. On July 15th, he and his team released a paper called Satan, that's SATA, S-A-T-A-N, an air gap exfiltration attack via radio signals from SATA cables. <laughs> Get it? Satan, SATA. It's, it's right there. Anyway, this one... The way it works is infuriatingly simple. As data passes through the cables, it emits radio signals during read-write operations. And if a properly configured receiver is within three and a half feet of that cable, the configured receiver can read data from the radio signals that your SATA cable is emitting. This essentially turns the SATA cable into a really small range radio station. Amazing. And a reminder that security always means to ask the next question. Sure, hackers can't get in via the regular internet, but how else could they? Well, in this case, they can get in by reading unshielded radio emissions from how your hard drive's connected. <laughs> In other examples, Gori and his team have demonstrated ways to get data out of air gap systems via light, machine vibrations, sound, heat fluctuation, and power systems, all via observing how the subsystems impact radiomagnetic or electromagnetic fields. Now, these are edge cases to be sure, but it's real enough that NSA has a tempest specification describing how to spy using these kinds of signals, as well as how to test for and protect against them. The wiki article about Tempest is interesting and talks about some real and some fantastical examples of these attacks in the wild. I would link to more details about Tempest in the show notes, but frankly, I don't want to get put on another list. You're on so many already. 
for real. Once you get to double digits, they send you a hat. <laughs> Stumbling into the cloud era, vSphere now supports cloud in it. It's quite rich that a company claiming to run private clouds did not support such a fundamental component as cloud in it until now, but I suppose better late than never. Cloud in it is a way to configure a Linux operating system after the initial deployment is finished. All the major cloud providers and even the minor ones have supported it for ages. On-premises OpenStack has also supported cloud in it, but we all know OpenStack isn't exactly the dominant private cloud platform that is securely in the clutches of VMware for the time being. Starting with vSphere 7 Update 3, you can now use cloud in it as a guest customization option for VMs running on the platform. For those who are running Linux across public and private clouds, this feature will help with operational parity. If you're looking to get started, William Lamb has an excellent series of posts that show you how to prepare the guest operating system and run the guest customization. Currently, the only way to run cloud in it is through the vSphere API and not the UI, which if you're using cloud in it, eh, you're probably using the API anyhow. The feature is a welcome addition and maybe even a sign that new things are still on the horizon for VMware, at least for vSphere. Ironically, not for Horizon itself. I would just like to state for the record that it is pronounced cloud in it and not cloud in it. Management regrets, well, Ned. OpenAI makes full Dolly 2 model widely available sort of for a cost. We've talked about Dolly, the AI model that builds images from text prompts a few times on the show. Until now though, the general population did not have direct access to the actual official version of Dolly. It was for researchers only. Now, though, there's a waitlist for DALI 2 access, and OpenAI hopes to have a million users, quote, within the next few weeks. There have been other versions that simulate DALI 2, such as the very popular and recently renamed Crayon.com, formerly called DALI Mini, but as this was a derivative effort, Crayon doesn't actually have an official link to the OpenAI project, hence the name change. Anyway. OpenAI is doing a pay-for credit-based beta, i.e. more like open your wallet, am I right, for the general audience. Mm. A lot of private work has already been done to, quote, mitigate bias and toxicity since the project was announced in April. Now that it's becoming public, this ought to get interesting. The GPE-3 language model has already seen widespread adoption, and the internet has seen an explosion of generic, borderline, nonsensical blog content as a result. I expect that DALI 2 will have a similar trajectory, at least in the beginning. Just remember, kids, just because it looks weird doesn't make it art. Intentionality makes it art, no matter how out there the visual is. Just ask Corona Miss Bosch. He makes my dishwasher. <laughs> That's a completely different. Never mind. NFTs hit a roadblock with Minecraft. Yeah, see, Mojang, uh -huh. a subsidiary of Microsoft, has issued a public statement regarding their stance on NFTs inside the Minecraft platform. Quote: Integrations of NFTs with Minecraft are generally not something we will support or allow. End quote. Reading through the linked blog post, 
Mojang lays out their philosophy behind Minecraft and how NFTs and blockchain run counter to that philosophy. Essentially, Minecraft is founded on the idea of building a community where everyone has equal access to content to encourage sharing and exploration. NFT implementations introduce artificial scarcity and exclusion, forcing users to perform tasks to earn special NFTs. As we have seen time and again, NFTs are unregulated, highly speculative, financial vehicles with little to no value and excessive risk. That doesn't exactly align with the game that was built for collaboration, creativity, and equal access. As such, the official policy states, quote, blockchain technologies are not permitted to be integrated into our Minecraft client and server applications, nor may they be utilized to create NFTs associated with any in-game content, including worlds, skins, persona items, or other mods, end quote. On a personal note, it's heartening to see a major games platform take a hard stance against play-to-earn models that siphon the joy out of video games and replace it with avarice and greed. That's my day job, people. Even us evil robot overlords need to relax from a hard day of destroying the fabric of society. Can I please just turn everyone into a zombie in peace? Can I get an amen? Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now go fire up a Minecraft server on a Raspberry Pi, crack open a cold one, and toast to the Ender Dragon that we've made it this far. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80 respectively, or you could follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't, unless it's a tutorial on using Redstone to build a difference engine replica. Neat stuff. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. So like Redstone the restaurant? Yeah, it's, I like the shrimp. Yeah, you use the breadsticks as the um, switches. It's really cool. Oh, if you go to if you go to Olive Garden and you're really annoying to the waiter, you can get enough breadsticks to build a little house. <laughs> an infinite number of breadsticks for an infinite number of houses. <laughs> I am Lord of Soup. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>